Hello and thanks for downloading. I imagine you know what you've let yourself in for, but just in case you haven't, this podcast relates to the BBC show Troy, Fall of a City. Each week, I take some of the aspects to it which I think are worth unwrapping and, well, here we are. You don't have to be watching the TV show though, and on that note, I'm aware that some listen to this who aren't able to access the show just yet. I say yet because it's going to be on Netflix from what I understand. There also seems to be a good few of you from outside the UK. Somewhat naively, I thought only UK-based folk would listen, but that's not the case. According to the stats from my lost podcast, I've had people download from the US, Canada, Spain, Netherlands, Ireland, Latvia, Sri Lanka, Australia and New Zealand. To all of you, hello, and plug intended, rate me on iTunes, visit ancientblogger.com and say hi on Twitter, ancientblogger. Well, this week, there was almost too much to pick out, and it couldn't be a bigger contrast to last week, which was truly Spartan. The main one for me was the introduction of the Amazons, and it's something I've already done a podcast on. One of my earliest podcasts focused on how Wonder Woman was couched within the Amazon myth, and also featured some other female warriors. Wherever you downloaded this from, it's also there, so go and find it, obviously, after you've listened to this episode. In this episode... I'll be looking at the Amazons, the death of Patroclus, and finally, I'll look at the big fight at the end of the episode between Achilles and Hector. Time for a sip of tea and a quieter musical interlude, with you in a few seconds. This week we meant Penteslaer and co. According to Robert Graves, Penteslaer could mean forcing men to mourn, not exactly swipe right friendly, but I don't think she minded too much. Penteselea's relationship with the story isn't found in the Iliad. Indeed, she arrives after the death of Hector, which is where the Iliad story ends. I think it's fair to say that the Amazons really fascinated the Greeks. In the classical period, the theme of Amazons was very popular. It could be that artists relished the option of showing their skills with the female form. As the Amazons were the antithesis of the male-dominated Greek society, you might also argue that this collection of binary opposites fascinated the Greeks in a cultural sense. The idea of a female-dominated warrior society, like anything, may well have been prompted by a real occurrence of something similar, and there does seem to be a tradition of female warriors based around the Crimean Peninsula. Herodotus suggested they ended up mixing with the people of this area after travelling from southern shores of the Black Sea, their descendants formed the tribes such as the Scythians and Sarmatians, and this may be of a, a, an attempt to explain the presence of female fighters in this region, essentially retrospectively writing in a myth for them. The Kurgans, or burial mounds, of this region contained women buried not only with weapons, but with battle injuries. For all of you Skyrim fans out there, and I'm one of them, one woman even had an arrow injury to the knee. The women fought on horseback, and in many ways this makes sense, as it requires agility rather than brute strength. So fighting in this capacity levelled the ground somewhat against male opposition. If you're interested in learning more about this, then I know Adrian Mayer has written a book on the Amazons, and it's on my to-get list. I can also throw in a bizarre bit of trivia confirmed by Adrian, namely that Hitler had nightmares about space Amazons. It's true, by the way. I've got it on Twitter. And we all know Twitter is true. Well, more importantly, we all know Adrian Mayer said it, so I believe her. 
Back to Penthesilea, as a character she is fascinating. According to one myth, Achilles fell in love with her as he killed her, and this is represented on a vase which I vlogged about as part of my vase vlog project on YouTube. It's on my website as a post, and there's also a link to my YouTube channel there as well. So we'll move from Penthesilea and plugs to Patroclus. For those of you who knew what was coming, this was how Achilles gets back into the battle. It was handled somewhat differently to the Iliad, where Achilles has his Aristia, and this is a heroic highlight of sorts, and in Achilles' case, it meant the Iliad depicting him and butchering a large number of Trojans. The TV show, however, in line with keeping things a bit less extravagant, had Achilles roll up to the walls of Troy and challenge Hector. I'll look at the fight in a bit, but this did remind me of a piece I did a while back, and one I've just put up on agentblogger.com, in which the actual date for the death of Patroclus is given as the 6th of June 1218 BC. But, you ask, how can you specify a date for the death of a most likely fictitious character in a Greek epic poem about a battle which features talking horses, amongst other things, and in many ways you'd be right, but why can't we have some fun? In a paper published in Mediterranean Archaeology and Archimetry, a group of scholars argued that an eclipse occurred on the same day that Patroclus died at Troy. Book 17 features a passage around lines 366, in which the two armies fight over the body of Patroclus in darkness, as there was neither sun nor moon. Taking this as meaning an eclipse, the next step was to find a probable candidate. Now if you didn't know, there is a site, again linked in my piece on this, where possible solar or lunar eclipses are linked to dates in the past, and ergo to certain famous events which may mention them. On my piece, I've listed a number of famous possible eclipses which were referenced in antiquity. The key thing with eclipses is predicting the corridor where you can observe them from. Using high-tech software, the scholars made the case that the path of the eclipse would have been over Troy and in the late afternoon. In short, a possible candidate. Going further they were able to cite other celestial activity, in this case the position of Venus, which is apparently mentioned in Book 23, lines 226 to 228, as supporting evidence. They even argued that the final scene, as depicted on the famous Shield of Achilles, was in fact a sky map of the date where Patroclus died. The NASA site, I have linked in my article, gives a rival date of 16th of April 1178 BC as the eclipse on the day of Patroclus' death. What seems to have swung it for the 1218 date is there is an eclipse 10 years later, and apparently this is referenced in the Odyssey when Odysseus lands back at Ithaca. The logic goes, bear with me, that as it took Odysseus 10 years to get home, these are the smoking guns. At the very worst, it's, it's just a bit of fun. And what's more fun than battle casualties and astronomical phenomena which people pretend to understand? In episode 6, we didn't just lose Patroclus, Hector also went the same way. To goad him into action, Achilles slits the throat of the three captured prisoners, and this reminded me of Achilles' murder of the Trojan princes at the funeral games for Patroclus and the Iliad. The funeral games there occurred after Hector's death, and Patroclus' ghost even appears to Achilles to chivy him on about it. When I first read the Iliad, this really stuck with me, and every so often there's a whiff of something more sinister at play in Greek myth, particularly in the Iliad. At the beginning of Book 23, Achilles speaks to the courts of Patroclus and informs him that twelve radiant sons of Troy, whose throats I'll cut to bloody your great pyre, such fury came at me upon your death. The suggestion is that Achilles is justifying this act because of his emotive state, but this seems taboo. Human sacrifice, even to the dead, never really sits well. Remember, at the outset of the war, this involved Agamemnon doing something similar with his own daughter. 
Where the act of Agamemnon might seem inexcusable, Achilles can be viewed in a slightly different way, because it was a perversion of a standard practice in war, or, or at least one in the Iliad. You capture enemies to either enslave or receive a, a, a ransom for them. You don't capture them to sacrifice them. Consider Hector, who in his fight with Achilles outlines what he hopes will happen to his body, name that Prime will pay a ransom for it, and he'll receive a proper burial. Achilles taunts him. He even goes so far to say that if his passion drove him to it, he'd eat him raw. Though this doesn't occur, Achilles' hint at this most grave of taboos underpins his emotional state. Through his rage and despair, Achilles is in danger of extending himself into the taboo heartlands. I imagine this would have shaken the Greeks listening to it, as burial was a cornerstone of what the Greeks held proper and correct in society. The treatment of Hector's body may not have chimed and had the traction with us that it did with the Greek audience listening to the Iliad being sung. Doubtless we'll see it as awful, we do. But for the ancient Greeks, it was more than this. The Greeks considered proper burial rites as vital. Just think of Antigone, or even Argonusae, and this was a naval battle in 406 BC, in which Sparta was beaten by Athens. The success was overshadowed by the inability to retrieve the bodies due to the stormy weather. Not satisfied, six of the eight generals involved were executed as a result. But back to the fight. I thought it was all very good. I did notice Achilles' shield looked differently to the ones we might be familiar with. To give a very basic pricey, it seemed to be like a Dipolon or Boeotian one, where the sections of the sides have been removed. There's a fair amount of debate why the sides were removed in these shields. Some argue that it was allow, it allowed the spear to poke through, and the counter to this is that it would drastically remove or reduce your manoeuvrability if you did fight that way. Other thoughts are that it made the shield lighter to handle, without really reducing the protection of it as it still covered the main part of the body. And this shield design possibly evolved from the figure of eight shield, which was used in the Mycenaean period. In the show, we also got an understanding of how they'd handle the Achilles sticks myth. From what I remember, the story of Achilles being dipped into the sticks isn't referenced at all in the Iliad. The show had mentioned it in an earlier episode, and when Hector injured Achilles, he made a comment about it. This is a good example of the difficulties in staging Greek myth. Which one do you choose? One where Achilles is essentially in cheat mode, or the one where he has magnificent armour and exceptional martial skills. We're now left with two episodes, which means they'll have to pack a fair amount of detail and content in. And of course, we're waiting for the horse. In truth, getting in and out of the city has not exactly seemed that challenging, so perhaps they do need a, a large wooden mammal in order to make it a bit more difficult for them. Next week, I expect that the podcast will drop midweek again, or a bit later. On Sunday, it's Easter. And it's traditional in Brighton, or at least in my local, to watch drag queens racing an obstacle course for charity whilst drinking. Indeed, this year, yours truly has been asked to join the runners list, despite never wearing heels or anything like it before. In keeping with my mythical theme, I'm running as Shercules. Get it? So expect to see some very bizarre pics on Twitter on Sunday, on Instagram. By the time I've recovered, watched the show, made notes, and got rid of the eyeliner, it will be midweek. Still, I really hope this weekend one is a good one. Thanks for listening, and be sure to rate this on iTunes and visit hmblogger.com where you can find various bits and bobs and links to everything I do, and also come and say hello to me on Twitter, at ancientblogger. Till next time, keep safe and stay well. Infamy! Infamy! They've all got it in for me!